So right now, in real time, I have some friends who are divorcing. I have some pastor friends who are resigning. I have some other friends with careers in limbo. Not quite sure where they're going to work or if they're going to continue working where they work. I know other friends who are contemplating and praying through leaving our state, moving. I have some other friends that are battling for their sobriety. Other friends wrestling with some anxiety, depression. Other people I know that are just flat out dog tired. That kind of, you peel back a layer of tired and you find more tired. There's death, there's disappointment, there's rejection, there's some tragedy. Like, man, what's a person to do? What's a man to do? What's a woman to do? If we can put up this next slide. Anyone recognize this piece of art? What's it called, anyone? It's The Last Supper by... Da Vinci, Leonardo DiCaprio, no, Leonardo <laughs> Da Vinci, it's, it's a famous painting, it's the Last Supper. Next slide, not quite as famous, same scene though, uh, I think I've shown this before, when I walk into my office at Olympia First Baptist Church, this is one of the pieces of art that's hanging on the wall as I walk to my office almost every day. Uh, same subject matter, it's called, it's the Last Supper. I do have some questions about the artist, uh, why they all look the same. Uh, also, they're all look, looking very European, um, but I won't get into that today. This is from, I think, 1966, not the 1490s, not so high quality. But whether, go, go back. Actually, give me, give me, give me Da Vinci. Now give me knockoff Da Vinci. I don't know about you, but almost every portrayal of the Last Supper, almost every portrayal of this scene, of this meal, they look calm. I don't know, Jesus, <laughs> I don't know what he's doing there. Um, he's got that look. But they're, they're calm and they're serene and they're orderly and they're staged. You go back to uh, the first one. They're all sitting on one side of the table for the camera. Um, there's some discussion going on in that one. But the scene looks so poised and so drama-free when, when the reality of what's happening in that moment is anything but that, Right? In fact, maybe you've heard the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. Like That's more accurate of what was happening in that place. This supper, the last supper, was a dark and dangerous meal. It actually was eerie and ominous. And at the same time, it contains a very particular picture of hope, too. In fact, if I may be so bold to say that the Last Supper offers us something that's invaluable to our discipleship, to be a follower of Jesus that survives. 
So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to John chapter 13. John 13, verse 18. Tonight we're going to consider this meal. Tonight we're going to consider the passage that describes the Last Supper. And tonight we're continuing on in our series called The Great Invitation. We have been and will continue to be looking at this section, John 13 through 17, the the Upper Room Discourse. And what I want you to do as we go through this tonight is I want you to put yourself in that room. And I want you to put yourself in that space. I want you to see and hear, if you can even, the, the danger that is there in the room. Because this is the story of the Last Supper. It's what goes down between Jesus and the disciples as they celebrate Passover on the night that Jesus is betrayed. It's a story of contrasts. Uh, We see a little bit into the life of Judas. We see a little bit into the life of Jesus. We see a little bit into the life of John and others. But even more than all that, this story, I believe, is a masterclass on our posture as Jesus followers in the midst of a dark and dangerous world. Because I think we need to continue to learn how do we live, how do we respond, how do we survive, how do we thrive in a dark and stormy night. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, I know I've got friends that are in a dark and stormy night. I feel it myself each and every day. Because it's not hypothetical. What will happen when you walk through darkness? (laughs) We're living in it. Look at John 13, 18. Let me read it to you. Here's the story as John tells us. Begins with the words of Jesus. He's speaking here. It says, Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Now, before I get into the good news of the story, and before I get into the practical picture of hope that I think is embedded in this story, I think it's important for us to name and to sense and to feel and to understand the danger that's in the room this night, the darkness that's in the room this night. 
Because this story, first of all, it's dangerous for Judas. And maybe you've heard this story before. Maybe you haven't. But those that do know the ending of this scene and the ending of this story, it does not end well for Judas. Judas leaves the room. He goes out into the night. He leaves the meal. He secures his betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He leads the soldiers right to the face of Jesus and he betrays his friend with the sign of a kiss. And Jesus gets turned over into their hands. And then it goes on for Judas from there. He has this sense of regret of what have I just done? And he tries to return the money, but it's too late. And there's this deep regret that leads to sorrow. And tragically, it ends up with Judas taking his own life. There's danger in the room for Judas. Because it's in this room where Judas makes his final rejection of love. And there are other places we could take the time and go back in John's Gospel or other places and see the pieces where you're like, something's not right with Judas here, but this is the final time where Judas rejects Jesus' love. Jesus has washed his feet and they're sharing Passover and Judas leaves to betray But the story is not only dangerous for Judas, the story is also dangerous for Jesus. Again, verse 21 here says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. If you were to look at Jesus' face in this moment, in the scene, if you're in the room watching Jesus, Jesus is not yucking it up He's not cracking jokes. He's not celebrating. He's not having an amazing time. What's going on in Jesus? Jesus is troubled. He's troubled in his spirit. He's not just sitting there stoically taking it in. Jesus is sad. Jesus is troubled. He's heartbroken. The word John uses here, troubled. It's a word that means movement from being shaken. Jesus is shaken here. Why? Because he knows that one of his friends is about to betray him. You know what they say about betrayal? That the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. Betrayal by its very nature, it comes from your friends. It comes from those close to you. And every act of betrayal begins with trust. And that is moving Jesus. And he's troubled. He's shaken. And among just the sheer humanity of friendship going sideways, there's reason for Jesus' trouble. Think about it. You could be the Messiah You could invest yourself in the lives of someone else for three years. You can have, in Jesus' case, perfect communion with the Father. You can teach perfectly, preach perfectly, heal perfectly, and cast out demons, and still end up betrayed. That's dangerous. That's dark. But Jesus knows the taste of that betrayal. 
Jesus' words here are haunting. One of you here, among, like this, is, this isn't just like those evil people out there. Like This is among us here in the room. One of you will betray me. It's dark and troubling for Judas and Jesus. And I will say, this story is dangerous for everyone. Right, all throughout John's Gospels, one of his favorite um, images is, is to play with light and darkness. And you see it even back here in John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so there's this play about light and darkness and Jesus as the light and life has come in. And so there's this interplay between light and dark in John 1. John goes on through this. Next slide. In John chapter 3, you see that Nicodemus visits Jesus at night in the dark. And so these things are happening at night. John 9, Jesus says that night comes when no man can work. In John 11, he explains that if a man walks in the night, he stumbles because there's no light in him. And then this little story, John 13, ends very appropriately. They're having the Passover feast together. He speaks of betrayal. Judas gets up and leaves the room. And the last words in this section, verse 31, this is what all John says. He goes, and it was night. And there's a part of that, you're like, yeah, of course. He's describing like, it's not daytime anymore. And the sun went down and there's moon and stars and it's nighttime. And part of that is true. It was night, like chronologically speaking, it was night when this story takes place. But I think John, as he's talking about light and darkness, and talking about day and night, there's something else happening here in this scene and in this story. That what has just gone down, what has just taken place, is dark. It's night. And there's a sense where evil seems to be winning, and Jesus is troubled, and he sees one of his closest, Judas, scheming against him. It was night and it was dangerous for everyone in the dark. And yes, there's danger for Judas because it leads down to his own death and it's dangerous for Jesus because he's going to be handed over to the soldiers. But I think you can't read the story without understanding it as a cautionary tale for us as well. And there's warning here about the night. There's warning here about the darkness. The Judas-Jesus story should sober us up real quick. Because we can tell this from the Jesus perspective, but also from our perspective. Judas had the best mentor, right? Judas, he listened to all the best sermons. Judas was there listening to the He heard the Sermon on the Mount. Not even on podcast. He heard it live. Judas had the opportunity to have every parable of Jesus not only told to him, but explained to him. Judas had the best Bible study fellowship group ever. The best leader in the history of the world. He had the best leading. He had the best field experience he pulled off some of the greatest missional feats where they fed the 5,000, healed people, and cast out demons. 
Judas was around the crew casting out demons. Do you realize that you can have the best sermons and the best mentor and the best group and the best field experience and supernatural experiences and the best community and you still end up like Judas? That's dangerous. I'm telling you, dark, dangerous things. And it leads to Judas' death and Jesus' trouble, and it should make everyone that's sitting around the table there that day scratch their heads a little bit. Because the darkness means that some people will choose to reject love, and the darkness means that there's some people who will die in tragedy, and the darkness means that your heart can be broken and disappointed, and the darkness means that nothing should be taken for granted. And maybe some pieces of that ring true to your own life and story. Right? The longer that we all live, the more our nice, tidy boxes get knocked over. And life kicks us. And you're like, how did that happen? How did that thing fall apart? Why did he die? Why did she stray? Why did that thing go south? Why is my world so upside down now? And all of the darkness that we walk through and taste and feel and experience and the disappointment and the betrayal and the tragedy and the unnecessary, we deem pain. It can lead to deconstruction or cynicism or despair or doubt. Or it leads us to double down and try harder or fight. Because again, it's the darkness of this night that ends up in the garden and it leads Peter to pull out his sword and start fighting to keep Jesus safe. So some of us fight to maintain control in the darkness. The darkness messes with us. Sometimes we think it's always going to be and they all lived happily ever after. And we're like, the longer we live, we're like, man. What happened? What's going on? But I can tell you something. As this story tells us, there's actually a different way to face the darkness, and that's the hope I want to give us tonight. Because the darkness is real. It's chilling. It's discouraging. It's disheartening. Life is not easy. There aren't necessarily cute, trite answers that answer everything for us. There's not magic wands that we can wave and bibbidi-bobbidi-boo make everything okay. Deep problems in our life, deep issues in our world. And yet, there's this posture that I think is modeled for us here at the Last Supper that I would love to see more in my life. I would love to see more in our church because I think it allows us to face the darkness differently rather than despair. So let me point this out to you. While Judas was exiting in betrayal, right, Peter's in the room. He wants to know his answers. Like, who is it? Who's Jesus talking about? Say, John, you're closest. Ask him. Ask him. So Judas is leaving. Peter's scrambling. I want you to pay attention to the disciple named John. Or more accurately, he's known in this book as the the disciple Jesus loved. I love it. The one Jesus loves. 
So go back to John 13, especially verse 23. While one disciple, Judas, is rejecting love, look at John. John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Verse 23, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. There's a scholar named Ronald Rollheiser. He, he points out that John gives us here the ultimate image for discipleship. That John gives us a posture that we ought to be assuming ourselves in the midst of the darkness. I don't know if you caught it there in verse 23. What's John doing? Where's John sitting? The ESV tells us, verse 23, he's reclining at table at Jesus' side. The NIV says he's reclining next to him. I'm going to go to the King James Version for the win on this one. It's not often that I quote from the King James Version. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Where's John? John is leaning back on Jesus, which again is why these pictures, the paintings, uh, which make it look like they're sitting around an Ikea table or a Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving dinner, aren't helpful. Literally, he's leaning into the body of Jesus. It's rendered Jesus' bosom. John is leaning on Jesus' bosom, which means chest or breast or the hollow formed between someone's arms in the fold of the garment close to the heart. The disciples aren't sitting at the Last Supper in their leather back chairs and they're not at a, on one side of a modern table. Where's John? Leaning into, leaning back on Jesus. Leaning into Jesus' bosom. They're reclining close. Right. Any guy want to come up and I'll demonstrate where he's leaning? This is a conversation, this topic, even to use the word bosom, to talk about Jesus' bosom makes people kind of weird, odd. It makes men, it makes 21st century men uncomfortable. John's found the spot, my friends. John has found the spot to face the darkness. Listen to what Rollheiser says about this image here. He says, hence in John's image, we see the beloved disciple, I love this, with his ear on Jesus' heart, hearing Jesus' heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking out into the world. This is John's ultimate image for discipleship. The ideal disciple is the one who is attuned to Christ's heartbeat and sees the world with that sound in his or her ear. I love the picture. Leaning back on Jesus. Leaning on the bosom of Jesus. Ear to his heart. Eyes to the world. 
And I know it's just a brief snapshot of a brief image in the midst of the scene, but I find it compelling. John the Beloved, confident of his identity, who he is, who is he? He's the one that Jesus loved. Confident of his identity, buried in the heart of Jesus, looking out to the world with the sound of Jesus' heart in his ear. And I'll argue that's the best place to be. There's, there's no other place for us to face the darkness than to find ourselves there. And that's what I'm chasing. That's what I want. Near to Jesus. Hearing his heart. Secure in his love. Clear on my identity. But able to see the world around me. One more wrinkle to this kind of the bosom conversation here. John in the bosom of Jesus. Um, it's not the first time that John uses the word bosom either. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 17, the very beginning in the prologue of the whole book, it says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And as John is introducing us to Jesus, he's describing where Jesus is. And he describes that Jesus is the one who makes the Father known. And here's Jesus. He's the one at the Father's side, the ESV says, or literally, again, the word, same word. That Jesus, who makes the Father known, that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. In a place of security, identity, closeness, connection. Jesus in the bosom of the Father. And then in the Last Supper, there's John in the bosom of Jesus. As Jesus understands and finds his place within his relationship with the Father, then John has a place to find himself in relationship with Jesus. And I love those pictures being woven together. And it makes me ask deeper questions for us. Like, how are we going to navigate this cultural moment? How are we going to navigate as an individual, as a family, as a church community, the darkness of our age? The difficulties that we face? Where do we, where do we find some bearings to live our lives? Remember a few weeks ago I talked about a, a working theory of change. I, I pointed out it's not this. <laughs> Sometimes we think it is this. We think it's just information. Just get, get me more information. Oftentimes just more Bible. Give me more information, some more inspiration, and more willpower, and I can change. But again, I read a story like this and I'm challenged because if a guy like Judas can be around Jesus for years, and hear all of his sermons, and witness all of his miracles, and be in the best small group ever, and actually join in the ministry that Jesus was doing, and end up betraying, then what does change actually look like? And I realize that this is an idea, and Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father, and so the answer isn't for us to drive to Jerusalem and find an upper room so we can snuggle with Jesus. But it makes me ask these questions. 
What do we take the time to lean on? What are you leaning on? What do we have our ear to? Which way are we facing? Go to the next slide. Because the first question speaks to our core identity. What do you take the time to lean on? What is your go-to? John says, here, I am the one Jesus loves, and I'm going to sit in his bosom and lean on Jesus. Our, our core identity is our sense of self, out of which we live and make meaning of the world. What's your identity? What do you lean on? And we live in a world, this is the confusion of the world right now, we live in a world that simultaneously tells us to find your identity in what you do, right? Your job, your school, your income, your relational status, your hobbies, that's your identity. And even now more than ever, we're being told to discover our identity by ourselves, meaning that you don't have to look beyond anyone but yourself to find answers to the big questions of life. So if you want to discover life, you want to discover identity, and you want to figure out how to live, the answer is, is look within and discover it yourself. And oh my, what chaos those two things create. Looking for identity in what we do, and then when that doesn't work out necessarily, look inside and ask the question from within. What are you leaning on? No wonder we live in a world that is so frazzled and anxious, looking to get identity from our doing and not our being, finding help, not from someone outside of ourselves, but we have to just look inward. And Jesus offers a different way that you may live from the place that you know you are loved that you may know that you're beloved, that that would be the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you is not how much money you make or what job you have or how successful you are or what school you go to or what date you have or if you're married or not or if you're gay or straight. That the most true thing about you would be that you are loved by God. Jesus says, lean in that. Lean into that. In the darkness, lean into that. You ever done a plank before? I, won't, I, I would get down on the floor right now and demonstrate I'm not going to do that to myself. A plank is when you hold your body weight up. What happens after you do a plank? For a little while. Five seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, three minutes. What happens when you plank? Yeah, you get tired, your arms get fatigued, right? They start shaking, your core starts wobbling because <laughs> it's really hard to hold yourself up. And it feels like right now we live in a world that says plank forever. And life was meant to be lived leaning into Jesus. So the first question speaks to our core identity. The second question speaks to our formational inputs. Meaning, do you listen more to Jesus' heart 
than the heartbeat of the world. It should be no secret to us by now that we live in a world and we live in a culture and we live with media and voices and internet and social media that constantly speak to us, shape us, inform us, and in many ways deform us every day of our life because we are constantly taking in information all the time, every day. I saw a recent study says the average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day. 2,617 touches a day. And again, I have a phone. It's still in my pocket right now. I probably touch it just as much as you do. But you have to believe that you can't touch your phone that much without your phone touching you. Imagine the Last Supper set in Olympia 2021. John reclining on Jesus' bosom. Hold on, hold on. Right? We live in a distracted age. How many hours, and this, is, this question probably depends on how old you are, but how many hours of cable news do you consume? What do we have our ear to? And again, I'm not saying that we have to get rid of our phones, never watch the news, never go online. But I think we have to be aware of what it's doing to us. And acknowledge at the very least that it may be getting in the way of us living a life reclined into the arms of Jesus. Or even in a more positive way, could you imagine if it's what 2,617 touches on our phone, could you imagine what life may look like if 2,617 times a day you're reminded the Lord reigns? Do not be afraid, do not fear. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so we can and we will talk about what are some of the ways in which we orient our lives? What are some of the practices that we do, whether it's prayer in all of its forms or the Bible in all of its forms of how we engage it, silence or solitude? I'm not even here to advocate for which one is the best way for you to put your ear to the heart of Jesus but we got to ask the question, where's my ear? What am I listening to? And we must be vigilant about distraction and absolutely intentional about putting our ear to the heartbeat of Jesus. And then this third question, it relates to our interpersonal orientation. Because I think there really are maybe more than this, but there's at least two ways to be in the bosom of Jesus. And one is just to bury our face in his arms. And there's times when that's okay, when you just need him to comfort and hold. But what I love about John's image here, reclining back on Jesus with his ear to his heart and an eye out to the world, it means that his eyes aren't just on himself or even just on Jesus, but he still has an eye toward others. Can you still see others in the darkness? 
Do you see them? Do you see there is need? Do you see the brokenness of others? Can you see the world, not just informed by all the noise, but informed by the heart of God, where the heart of Jesus is saying, I love those people. Do you see their brokenness? Do you see this need? Do you see that system? That's broken. That is not as it ought to be. And as we hear his heart, we can see others and see the world and respond. But we don't just get reactive and jump out of our own agenda, but we allow his heartbeat to set the pace for our engagement of others. And from this scene, Jesus goes on as Judas then leaves. He goes on in verse 34. Next slide, John 13, 34. Jesus then, as Judas leaves, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you have love for another. And this is Jesus' great call to love. This is his definition of love. This is the marker of being someone who follows Jesus, that they're gonna know us, recognize us by our love. And I'm convinced that that kind of love is so countercultural. But it has to come from somewhere. And it can't just be self generated. It comes from those who learn the posture of John, leaning into the identity of Christ, the heartbeat of Jesus, wrapped in his love, confident of who we are because of his love for us. It requires getting near to Jesus, being in his presence spending time with him, listening to his word so that we can face the world. And you may say, well, I stink at silence and I'm just so busy and I get overwhelmed with distractions and I'm anxious and I'm afraid and I prefer my podcast and my sports and I like politics and Instagram and I prefer Facebook scrolling to scripture and I prefer politics to prayer and shopping to silence. Jesus invites you in his love to lean on him, to learn his way. And to know the good news. The good news of his grace. The good news of his patience. The good news of his restoring work for you, to you. And it's why, as we continue to move forward as a church, we want to find environments for you to learn to cultivate this. We want to invite you into the bosom of Jesus, and that sounds creepy and weird. There's no better place for you to be than to find yourself in the arms of Jesus, confident in your identity, listening to his heart, following his directives for the world. And tonight... We're going to share in a meal in a moment, but even before that, we get to take communion together. We get to share that dangerous meal where Jesus tells us that his body was broken and his blood was shed because we haven't done this well. And he invites us back to rest in his arms. And maybe this week, Maybe a a thing you could try. Would you be willing to take five minutes or ten minutes this week, each day, to show up and put your phone away 
and to be still and to be quiet and to ask Jesus to share his heart for you. And ask those questions. Right? What, what am I leaning on? What do I have an ear to? Which way am I facing? What do I, who do I see, Jesus, as I have my ear to your heart? And just see what he says. May we live this week from the arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, there is um, I probably an, an endless lifetime of discovery in that one scene. And yet, Lord, I hear even you tonight inviting us back. Inviting us back to your arms of love. Inviting us back into your grace. Inviting us to reconsider what we're leaning into, what we're listening to, what's forming us. To find hope and life in the darkness. So God, I pray for those that are in the room tonight that may not yet know you. May they even sense tonight an invitation into your love. And for those maybe who've been walking with you for years, a re-invitation back to that place of intimacy. To a place of confidently being reminded of how much you care. Lord, we need you. Thank you for loving us well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able to stand,